All right, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Appreciate thanks for it. having me here. <laughs> so if you can, can you tell me about your operation? It's, you showed me a picture of the tall ship I and did. I was, you saw my reaction. So yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. I got to be honest. So can you tell me about the operation and some of the history? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give cool. you the brief, brief version, right? So I'm the Galveston Historical Foundation. We're in Galveston, Texas. We're a very old uh, historical nonprofit. We trace our roots back to the 1800s and Modern Organization Incorporated in 1954. I'm with the Galveston Historic Seaport. That's the maritime part of our organization. Uh, in the late 70s, a nautical archeologist by the name of Peter Throckmorton was in the business of finding old ships and trying to get them restored to preserve some of the uh, shipping history of the world. Okay. He was involved with some things in San Francisco and a few other places, worked with National Geographic, really stand up amazing person. Uh, he, um, found an old uh, derelict hall in Greece that um, was still operating, but he had recognized it that he thought it might have been a sailing ship. And uh, he figured out that it was, uh, that it was the vessel Alyssa that had been built in Scotland in 1877, and he went on a Herculean campaign, which is a whole other podcast, to rescue that vessel. And Galveston Historical Foundation ultimately uh, wound up being the purchaser of said vessel, uh, and they went to Greece to try and do some restoration of it, um, got semi-far along there, but realized they needed to bring it back into Galveston and actually towed it across the Atlantic uh, with no rig or anything else. And um, did the fundraising, put the effort in, put the volunteers in, and did probably what is one of the world's best examples of historic preservation. So they restored Alyssa to her 1877 sailing condition. She's a 205-foot riveted iron bark. Um, three-masted sailing ship, and she's been operating in Galveston since then. Wow. Okay. So what? how long did that restoration process take from, I guess you had two separate sections of it. How, how long was the initial one, and then after it came back, how long was the second one? Sure. We really actually call it three at this point. Um, so the first endeavor in Greece was right around two years, I think, if that's correct, two and a half or so years. Um, then they towed it home, and it was another probably two to three years of full restoration. We're singing the tune at this point, somewhere around three to four million dollars of 1979-1980 um, money, which is pretty impressive through uh, donations and uh, charitable organizations that supported us. The Moody Foundation was one of those large organizations that was in favor of it. It was to connect that maritime history of uh, uh, the seaport of Galveston, which is a beautiful historic place. Come check us out. Okay. Seamless plug. <laughs> and uh, um, then in uh, 2008, there was a major hurricane in uh, Galveston. Um, ship suffered some damage as a result of some electrolytic corrosion uh, post that hurricane. Uh, and we wound up doing another $3 million worth of repair work between 2012 and 2014. Uh, to bring the ship back up to where she is. That's when I started getting involved. Um, and then in 2018, uh, we had to bring the vessel into new regulatory compliance, and she's a sailing school vessel now. Okay. So students are learning That's sailing. Right. So we teach a volunteer training program, which is 98% museum, right? So most of the time, you pay a ticket, you come in the dock, you tour the ship, there's interpretive signage, some really beautiful stuff that you can see. But then on Saturdays, uh, we run a seven-month, 20-Saturday training program where regular people from all walks of life come down and learn from us. They do half-day training, half-day maintenance, uh, and they get certified to be the crew of the vessel when we get out and underway. So um, we usually graduate somewhere between 60 and 70 of those volunteers a year. 
Nice. They put in around like 30,000 volunteer hours a year, which is like a million dollars worth of labor. And that's how we that's how we paint and upkeep and restore and sail the ship. Wait, what are you, 30,000? 30, 30,000 volunteer hours a year. Wow. Okay. Am I blowing your mind? How we yeah, yeah. kind of. So my I, so I want to get, I'll, I'll come back to that. What is it like to maintain this thing? Oh, man, it's really challenging. Yeah. yeah is so it like nonstop? It is nonstop. Have you ever uh, painted the Brooklyn Bridge? Uh, twice. Yeah, well, you have to keep doing it, right? And all that's that whole old joke is by the time you get to one end of the bridge, you just start painting it back on the other one. Or the Golden Gate Bridge, depends on which coast you're on. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, it's constant. Um, the rigging is really complex. It's very involved. Uh, there's over seven and a half miles of running and standing rigging that are involved in this. There's 19 sails. We were talking about this earlier. It's a quarter acre of canvas. Uh, shackles and blocks and lubrication and fitting. We do pretty much most of that work in-house. We do the rigging repair and maintenance. We build our own blocks. We do some of our own blacksmithing. Um, and that's we, volunteer work? or There is some staff. There's a couple staff okay. members. I have uh, three full-time maintenance staff that are part of the museum. Um, but then, yeah, we use a lot of volunteers for a lot of that work, a lot of that labor. Um, we're a fully functioning uh, shipwright carpentry shop, and I'd say maybe a 50 to 60% functioning welding blacksmith shop. <laughs> All right, cool. And was the rigging and everything like this, was it that complex in the 1800s? Oh, or 100%. Really? So uh, okay. Alyssa is the spaceship of her era. This is an old joke of mine that we made real when we did a NASA astronaut training program in uh, 2017. We were actually trained astronauts from the NASA office, Johnson Space Center, which is in our neighborhood. Um, these ships were designed to carry cargo around the world, uh, and the sailor of the 1870s had less communications than people do now orbiting the Earth. Right? The space station is in constant radio contact. Yeah. Captain Cook was three years underway with no call home capability, right? So they are designed to be enduring, uh, efficient, um, manageable, maintainable. They're really incredible pieces of technology. Imagine being somebody from the 1800s and seeing that show up. A 200 to 205 feet, uh -huh. 205 foot boat showing up with all of that, all those complexities. I mean... In the 1870s? Yeah. You would, you would have thought of it like you would have thought of a car. Yeah, but it was like like no, no, no. So in 1877, Alyssa is a Ford F-150. That's really there's, there's thousands of them. That's how we move cargo. Oh, okay. Right. So a lot of English language comes from sailing terms. It's not by coincidence, right? All your goods Logs. and service in the world yep. all come from shipping. So in 1877, people took a ship like Alyssa for granted. There really? were thousands of them, right? They knew what a jib was. They knew how to set the upper topsails. It's common conversation. Interesting. And one of the big challenges we have in repair work and in reading historical documents is that uh, when you write a repair manual today, say you do for your car, you might say, check the spark plug. Well, that's because you know what a spark plug is, right? Everybody knows what a spark plug is. Every car has a spark plug. There's thousands of spark plugs. Well, a repair manual from 1877 might say, you know, ensure that the timidigais are slack. Well, you know what a timidigai is, right? Because everybody's got a timidigai. Of course. <laughs> My kids know what a timidigai is. So, so yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's more impressive today than it would have been then. Wow. So, uh, one other thing, too. I'm always curious about this. I don't say this in any, like, facetious way, but, like, why? Like, why... 
Why are you interested? Why are people interested in this? Why are people willing to put in 30,000 volunteer hours a year? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, there, there's a number of ways to answer that. I've been working on this for the 12 years I've been with the organization. <laughs> because, you know, why, right? I, I, I don't want to ask too much because I don't want them to realize that it's a bad idea and not show back up. But, <laughs> I mean, I constantly ask my volunteers, you know, why? Why do you do this? And, and I, I've landed on a couple of facets that I think really answer that question. Okay. One is a love of history, right? You know, to understand where you're going is to know where you have come from. To not know history is to be doomed to repeat its mistakes, right? These are common sayings that we hear. And there's value in learning the skills and traditions that are mechanical, handheld. Uh, it's innate in our human nature. Right? And sailing is one of those things that is older than the written word. We don't know where it came from. Yep. It developed along with humanity, much like cheese. Nobody knows where cheese came from. It's a whole other story. Uh, so I think there's a natural human instinct that people gravitate towards that. You know, I mean, it, it's just part of our DNA in some ways. I agree, because you, you even look how much we do digitally now and how everything's so connected that way. And I think in the past, you know, probably decade or so, you've seen this kind of return to people want to learn how to do martial arts. Mm -hmm. People want to learn maybe how to get like more mechanically inclined. Yeah. Things that actually bring you back closer to connection with the physical reality. Because at the end of the day, you know, these are things that we've built. They're not guaranteed to last. And, you know, you talk about like preppers or these crazy people. But there is some aspect of that that you go like, there's a return to having that core level of knowledge that do, does create like resilience as a like a human yeah, on like a, right. a, a core level. Right. And even the the knowledge of history, like just look at my answer before. I was like, oh, that must have blown people's minds. And it's like, nope. no, it, they took it for granted. And it's more impressive now. Like it's a, I have my own perceptions of history or what I think happened. And now it's like, Maybe I don't know as yeah, much as I thought. It would be surprising. So, so I think that, that that's a big part. I think that gets a lot of people there. They're interested in that. They're interested in that history piece. They want to learn that skill, maybe. They're interested in sailing in general. And they sure. find, you know, square rig sailing is, is like a pinnacle of tradition and, you know, uh, skill and ability. It's very complex. There's not a lot of them. But then ultimately, I think what happens is uh, as humans... Besides the technology piece, there's been a joke around this conference that you know everything you do now is all on your phone. My job is one of the few things that can't be automated. You can't learn how to sail a square rigger. You can't use your smartphone to sail a square rigger. You just throw this, just get it out. You don't need your cell phone. It's not yeah. going to help you do what we're doing. But uh, they come for the boat, and they stay for the people. Okay. And so the joke on another podcast I was on is that uh, we called it the Church of Elissa. Right, so just like your CrossFit group or your rowing club, <laughs> yeah. right, or whatever sure. it is you get there, right, you start coming down and you get to meet these people that have similar interest and like-mindedness, and you spend you spend an eight-hour day out in the sun or the rain or the cold together with your friends, not looking at a smartphone because you're not allowed to have phones in class. Okay. Right, and so like, where else do you get to do that? Almost nowhere. Almost nowhere. Right? I mean, so we, we, we now treasure that little nugget even more. And so, so it becomes this great community piece. And uh, 
those volunteers that I've you know really gotten to know well, and even the ones that I meet for the first day, if they stay or even if they don't, I mean, we, we become thick and thin friends and family. That's the shipmate mentality. And uh, I've been to weddings. We've seen babies born. We go to funerals. Um, you know, it's a, it's a community that really binds that all together. And so she does a bunch of facets, right? She builds that community and she provides that historical link. That's awesome, man. Well, and so where can people go to learn more or where can they go to connect with you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we're Galveston Historical Foundation. Okay. The website is Galveston History, all one word, galvestonhistory.org. Uh, and that'll link you to everything the GHF does, which is even more mind-blowing than just what I do because they're involved in so much uh, event production and historical building productions. Really wonderful team led by our executive director, Dwayne Jones, who's uh, really spearheading all of that. But uh, you can drill into that if you were particularly interested in the maritime to the Galveston Historic Seaport. And that'll provide links to how you can visit us, take our tours, go out on a dolphin watch. Uh, come join the volunteer program, or you also uh, can purchase a ticket to come sailing with Alyssa on our annual day sales in spring. We offer those to the general public. You become a sail trainee for the day, right? It's not a passenger cruise. You can't yeah. drink beer on board, <laughs> but uh, you'll learn about how the ship operates. You'll get to experience it. If you want, you'll have the opportunity to participate. Awesome. Mark, thanks for doing this, man. I hey, you're really it. welcome. Cool.